Hi, this is Morgan Michael welcoming you to Kindsight 101, the podcast, where you'll hear from world-renowned educational leaders about the mobilizing power of kindness. I believe that we all have an innate need to be seen, heard, and understood. When we dedicate ourselves to kindness, the ripple effects in our schools can be life-changing. Through this podcast, I want to challenge you to question your assumptions, amplify your insight, and embrace a willingness to go beyond the status quo in education. Together, let's learn how to make a big impact, one small act at a time. With terms like self-regulation being thrown around like confetti in education these days, the true meaning of such important approaches can become watered down and lose effectiveness. In this interview, I want to go to the source. In this discussion with the self-regulation guru, Dr. Stuart Shanker, we explore five actionable ways to implement self-regulation strategies within the classroom and with the goal of reducing re-traumatizing triggers for the students in our classes. Dr. Stuart Shanker is the founder and chief executive officer of the Merit Center, a distinguished research professor emeritus of philosophy and psychology from York University. His most recent book, Self-Reg, How to Help Your Child and You Break the Stress Cycle and Successfully Engage with Life, has garnered glowing reviews around the world, being published in Canada, the U.S., the U.K., as well as many foreign editions. Over the past decade, Stuart Shanker has served as an advisor on early child development to government organizations across Canada and the United States, and in countries around the world. During this period, he became increasingly interested in the impact of excessive stress on child development and behavior. Stuart Shanker's five-step self-reg model, the Shanker Method, is a powerful process for understanding and managing stress in children, youth, and adults. He also has a blog entitled The Self-Reg View. For more information about his work, visit www.self.com dash reg.ca or find him on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn by searching Stuart Shanker. For more information, visit my website, smallactbigimpact.com and search for episode seven. I want to thank you for the wonderful reviews that you've left for this podcast on iTunes. Your reviews make a big difference in helping other educators find this show. If you think that I'm doing good work here and you'd like others to get inspired and join our 21-day kindness challenge and movement, I'd love it if you would take a minute, head over to iTunes, and leave a review. Thank you so much. My name is Morgan Michael, and I head up the Small Act Big Impact Kindness Challenge. And in accordance with that, we've decided to do a podcast to really dig into concepts around empathy, what kindness actually really means, and really with a focus on the classroom in terms of rethinking how it is that we educate our students and how we're able to create cultures and environments where students feel safe and valued just as they are, not from a deficit model. So I'm really, yeah, I'm so excited to have you on the show because I think everything that I've read about you and that I've, you know, gleaned from your books and your online presence is that you really deeply believe in this, that we all need to be you know, yep. we all seek to be heard and understood and that if we can not only as educators and parents seek to do that for our children, but also uh, that we can teach them to see one another in that kind of a frame of reference that the culture can really shift to reflect that. And that I think some of the instances around depression and anxiety can maybe not necessarily decrease, but at least there's space made for people who struggle with that. So that's really where we're coming from. Geez, I think you just said everything I would want to say, so maybe we should have taped you. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. I believe that self-regulation is a key understanding that enables educators to look beyond the symptoms of problematic behavior and then find lasting ways of helping students to cope and then interact effectively within the classroom and even within their lives. So can you define what self-regulation is and how it relates to behavior in children in the classroom? How can we encourage students to take agency over their emotional states? 
Uh, so I love everything you just said, and I will um, answer your questions accordingly. Okay. Uh, there are many, many different definitions of self-regulation. In fact, there are 447 different uses. Oh. Yes, but I was trained in the very first, uh, the sort of foundational view of self-regulation. And so all of my work is grounded in what is called a psychophysiological definition. Mm. And what that means is that in this, in, in this, in this uh, framework, self-regulation refers to how we manage stress. Mm. And the issue here is becoming aware of our tension and energy levels, knowing when we are, so to speak, in a high energy, low tension state, when we are in a low energy, high tension state. Mm. These are absolutely critical to uh, the second part of your question, because it turns out that children really cannot um, and for that matter, neither can adults take, as you put it, take agency over their emotional states when they are in a very low energy, high tension state. And so what we look for in self-regulation is helping the child understand which state they're in, which energy tension state they're in, mm -hmm. why they're in it. And it's all that is always a question of stress and what they can do to get themselves back into that high energy, low tension state where children really can um, uh, become aware of their emotions, uh, become aware of themselves. So that's what we do in self-reg. That's so great. So again, so it's about really questioning and helping them to understand what state they're in why yes. they might be in that. And that may or may not be a more difficult question and something that an adult might be more equipped yes. to to sort of problem solve and, and deal yes. with in terms of a curious exactly right. mindset, right? And then yes. finally, developing tools to address address that and bring them back to that balanced state of, as you said, and I think you, you said it was a... Balanced state is exactly right. Yeah, the high energy, low tension. So... Can I add, can I add one more thing to yes. this? Yes. One of the most interesting things that we've seen is that children as young as three can begin to develop this understanding. Wow. Now, it goes without saying that they will not have the same kind of reflective awareness or insight that we would hope to see in a teenager or in a young adult. But what's fascinating, uh, and I must admit somewhat surprising for us in, the, in, in our clinical uh, program, was to see very young children um, capable of doing exactly what you just described, of learning what kind of energy tension state they were in and what to do to get themselves back into, uh, I absolutely adore the phrase you use, it's the one I use, back into that state of balance. That's mm. very important for us. Mm -hmm. Before we delve into some of the how, because of course this is what educational leaders are looking for, how do we do this? Um, and I know that you've written extensively on this, but I'd like to sort of maybe create a mental image of what what a high energy, high tension student might be looking like in terms of in the classroom and even in, in our homes. And then also what what a child with that low energy and high tension might be presenting with in terms of their behavioral symptoms. Can you speak to that? Yep. That's a fabulous question. Thank you. So um, we run, as you know, uh, we do um, what are called foundations courses where mm -hmm. we teach all this. Mm -hmm. And one of the most important things that we teach educators is how to read the signs that tell you what state a child is in. And these signs are, um, they are, um, fascinating insights that um, we can we can figure out we can glean where the child is by things like their their skin color mm -hmm. their movements their uh, we can even do it very effectively just listening to their tone of voice it turns out that when a child is in that uh, sweet spot, that balanced state of low energy and of, uh, of uh, high energy and low tension, their voice is somewhat melodious. Mm. Um, 
their uh, uh, speech rhythms are kind of um, uh, not slow, but they are, you know, paced. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just by voice alone or by gestures alone, we know where they are. Now, let's take the opposite side that you asked. How do we know when they're in that low energy, high tension state? Mm-hmm. Well, well, their voice goes up. Their voice become the pitch goes up. They they speak if they speak at all a little more uh, uh, in a little bit more of a staccato like manner. Mm. Um, face becomes a little pale. So um, the point I'm making here is, you know, we tend to think in terms of behavior, how the child's behaviors uh, tell us what state they're in, and of course, behaviors do tell us that. Mm-hmm. But 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 in addition to behavior, there are all kinds of cues. Now, we did a very interesting exercise. Um, I was, I gave a master class on the child with explosive behaviors. Mm. And so we started off and I, and I asked the educators, um, uh, how many of you have had this experience where the explosive behavior simply comes out of nowhere mm-hmm. and every single person in the master class put up their hand? And then I said, really? Are you sure? So I said, now I want you all to think back. Um, what, you know, think of that uh, particular child. And now think what that child was like the morning that child came into school. Mm-hmm. And did you have any sort of intuition that this might be a bad day? And you could hear this collective, ah, because right. of course everyone did. Yes. And so the reality is when we're doing self-reg, the reality is the child is in fact, uh, telling us through their body, uh, as well as through their behavior, what state they're in. And as we learn how to, if we're going to help a child, we have to help them learn, and this is critical, how to recognize the signs of when they are on that trajectory leading to a meltdown, we'll say, mm-hmm. happens. The key here is there's a sort, we call it an inverted V curve. When they hit the peak, mm-hmm. that's when that's when, in essence, their ability to think shuts down and, you know, sort of ne- strong negative emotions take over. Mm-hmm. So trying to teach them and even if they are very young is how to understand, to recognize in themselves the signs of when they are becoming overstressed and what to do to return themselves to that state of calm. That's so great. And I think yeah. I think that awareness piece about really checking in with one's own body has been yeah. has become a more popular approach as well. This this idea yeah. that when when we tune in, we we actually have more yes. control and more sort of certainty over the outcome of our own sort of reactions than than we might think. And even that that idea that kids can do that too is is yeah. a fairly new one, but I think it's gaining popularity because of, well, I mean, there are so many reasons. I'd love yeah. for you before, again, before we get to your the Shanker method, um, I'd love to talk a little bit about that triune brain and the fight sure. or flight because I yes. think that this is a really important piece, and I'd love for you to speak to that. The triune brain um, was a model that an American neuroscientist called Paul McLean developed back in the 60s and then wrote a book about. And this idea was that um, we don't have one brain, that we actually have three brains. Uh, one of them is a very, very ancient brain. It's what he called the reptilian brain. Mm-hmm. So let me take a second to talk about it because it's absolutely pivotal to your whole um, uh, your whole mission, your whole purpose. Yes. The reptilian brain is this ancient brain that was designed for solitary creatures. So these are creatures like a turtle or a lizard. And these are creatures that are born alone, that live alone. Um so if you know anything about turtles, you'll know that, uh, you know, the mom comes and she lays her eggs by herself mm-hmm. and then she's gone mm-hmm. and will not return. And those babies will be born 245 de- days later, depending on temperature. And so they come out of the uh, egg on their own and they find their way down to the water by instinct and they will live alone. 
for a creature that this is called a singleton, a solitary creature. Okay. For a creature like this, they have a very primitive mechanism for dealing with threat. And that mechanism is they either go into fight, flight, or freeze. Mm -hmm. So, and these are all variations on adrenaline. There are two kinds of adrenaline, and it depends on which kind is secreted, which behavior you get. Here's why this is so important for all the work we do. When a child goes into fight or flight, we have that same brain. Lane's hypothesis was that nature evolution preserved that brain. It is, it is still essential for a child when they go into, when they are threatened. If a child goes into fight or flight, they are going into this pre-social, this solitary state. Hmm. Their ability to socially engage shuts down. Their ability to mind break, to mind read, to feel empathy. Mm -hmm. to let alone to think all of these are absent so when we have a child that is in that state mm -hmm. if we if we now uh, get angry or irritated or or frustrated with this child because they, we say oh they're being selfish or um, we make everything a thousand times worse mm -hmm. because that's now what we're doing is we are uh, threatening, adding to the threat, sitting above that brain. And then again, this is huge for, for your mission. Sitting above that brain is what uh, McLean called the paleomammalian brain, the limbic system. Mm -hmm. And this was the brain that evolved a couple of hundred million years ago when mammals evolved. And the point of a limbic brain or a paleomammalian is that these creatures are social. Mm -hmm. This is the first time that we have um, a species where the mother raises the young, where the individuals live in a group. So they needed a brain that would that would support group existence. And for that to happen, they had to be able to identify which member of the group was was a friend mm -hmm. and which of the group was a foe right they had a this brain has its own form of perception mm -hmm. it's called it's called neuroception neuroception and what that means is that mammals have this system this brain system that is constantly looking for cues is this a, is this safety or is this danger mm -hmm. and they look at things like facial expression they look at, uh, they look at, they listen to the sound of voice. Uh, it's constantly reading um, in this sort of unconscious manner the signs that another is giving off so they can determine whether they can approach or whether they should avoid. Mm -hmm. That system is, that system is absolutely fundamental to how we teach because children are constantly scanning the other kids, they are scanning their teacher, they are scanning strangers, uh, this this unconscious neuroceptive scanning, telling them whether this so-and-so is a, a threat or a danger. Mm -hmm. And if that system, if that brain says danger, then they go into brown brain, they go into the reptilian brain, they go into fight or flight. Why is this so important for us? Well, it's important for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is we now know through some really cool neuroscience mm -hmm. that children, for example, that are having a lot of trouble with math, young children, seven to nine, that children who are having this trouble actually see math as a threat. Yes. We can, we can see this happening in them. Now, why is this so important? Well, because the third brain in McLean's model is the neocortex, the new brain. Mm -hmm. And and our and our species, uh, Homo sapiens, has the newest version of this pre of this neocortex. This is the brain that that supports thinking, language, uh, uh, compassion, all of these traits that we that we treasure in a child. Mm 
Mm-hmm. But here's and our problem is that if that if that mammalian brain, if that limbic system in self-reg, we call it the red brain, if that red brain decides that something is a threat, it sends the kid into that brown brain mm-hmm. and it shuts down the blue brain. It shuts down thinking. It shuts down. So if the child feels unsafe, if the child feels insecure, then that child cannot learn. Right. And just to, to make this really um, applicable to your mandate, mm-hmm. when we see a child that is behaving in a manner that we will, let's say, is, is antisocial mm-hmm. in whatever way, that tells us that that child is overstressed. That tells us that that child has gone into fight or flight. Hmm. Because a child's natural instinct is to engage with their peers, to have to have uh, friendships and strong relationships. If that's not happening for the child, it means the child has gone into that fight or flight state. And their ability to think, their awareness of what they're doing is is absent. So what do we do when we see this? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I won't answer this now because I know you want to do it later. Yes. But we do self-reg because the whole point of doing self-reg is to turn off that alarm, mm-hmm. that neuroceptive alarm, so that the child comes back into blue brain. So that that blue brain is back online and now that child can can process now that child can see someone else. Now that child can can become empathetic. Yes. Oh, that is such an incredibly clear way of describing the three brains. I think the best way I've ever heard it explained. Because I think sometimes we talk about that reptilian brain, but I don't think we always understand all of the, the complex relationships between them. And yeah. and I think that piece about the adrenaline and kind of, and, and I'm assuming that cortisol, that stress hormone yes. is, is part of that and how yes, it, it has been proven to shut down the empathy, yes. the oxytocin, the thing that yes. creates that belonging and yes. and sign- that piece that we're all looking for in one another is that oh, community Morgan, piece. Morgan has done her homework. <laughs> I have. Yeah. Well, it, this is kind of what k- kicked it all off, I think, is this passion. Yeah, you got Thank you yeah, for you, saying that. You've nailed yeah. Thank you. But it's just fascinating. And and I think also if we just dip our toe into this, this idea of children who have experienced any form of trauma and how those, yes. their scanning system that you were talking about is yeah. skewed by that experience and the, the narratives that they create, then they're really looking for a threat in every single aspect of their life, whether it exists, and seeing, right? And seeing. Yeah. And seeing it. And so, and so I think that it's so important for educators to realize that the things that we say and do, like you said, like math, it may not seem as though it's a yes. threatening trigger, but it can be a trigger point for kids. And when we are aware of yeah. that, you got it. Yeah, when we're aware of that, that that we can really change the way that that the kids can react to that threat or you or that perceived threat. So thank that's, you. <laughs> that's what suffering is all about. That's it. Yes. Yeah, so. Now, I would love to talk about your Shanker method because ultimately, I think now that we understand some of the elements of of the thinking that goes on and the way that our brain can get hijacked, how do we deal with that? How do we enable students to really not only understand elements of the process, of course, in a more simplified way, but to be able to bring themselves back to balance? How do we do that as teachers and as parents even? Can you speak to that? Sure. So we have a five-step method that we've developed over many years. And the first step is what we call reframing. Uh, You used that term, by the way, right at the start. Mm. Uh, And so what do we mean by reframing? Well, uh, let's start off with the simplest one. Um, We want to understand what is the difference between misbehavior and stress behavior. So um, misbehavior, uh, means that the child could have acted differently, that the child knew what he or she was doing. Uh, maybe they were testing limits or mm. seeing if they could get away with it. Do children misbehave? Well, of course they do. Mm-hmm. Stress behavior is a very different 
category. Stress behaviors are the behaviors that we display when we have gone into fight or flight or when we are overstressed and about to go into fight or flight. So uh, let's take as an example um, the kid who, uh, the, the, the child who has experienced trauma and maybe that child lashes out at another kid or grabs something. And we automatically see this as a misbehavior. And so we become angry or we raise our voice. But in fact, it was a stress behavior. It mm. was it was coming from deep within the lower levels of the triune brain. One of the things that we discovered when we worked with first with parents was as soon as parents understood this distinction between misbehavior and stress behavior, mm-hmm. their own stress dropped dramatically. Right that they didn't feel this anxiety or anger, whatever it was. They saw they saw what the child's needs were. And then we had, you know, the next question was, well, could we do this with teachers? And the answer was categorically yes. And that's why we've seen the self-reg explosion in Canada. Mm-hmm. Because, because teachers are the first beneficiaries. Teachers need self-reg every bit as much as the kid. Yes. Oh, so we've done, okay, so we're reframing their behavior and we have lots of uh, distinctions that we have to learn. So we have to learn how to distinguish, let's say, between uh, laziness and limbic breaking. This is a very important point. So if we go back to our math example, um, uh, the child is actually, the limbic breaks have kicked in. This is a, this is a, a, a red brain, that limbic system protection. Right. And what's absolutely unbelievable about this is uh, for years and years, I was puzzled by IQ tests. And because I knew that I was getting children in in clinic that had a very poor IQ, but I could see as we made them feel safe that they were way more intelligent than their IQ score was indicating. Right. And so what we learned um, was that an IQ test is, in fact, uh, an indicator of when their limbic breaks, which is protection, self-protection, when their limbic breaks kick in. Mm-hmm. And if we can release those breaks, then uh, if we can release the breaks, then all of a sudden we see the child's real intelligence. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now the last part of this whole argument, and this is fascinating. I mean, it's the same point with the math example. What what's happened with the math example? The kid who sees it as a threat yeah. is that their limbic breaks kick in. Uh, they will stop. Uh, they will basically flee from the task. If yes. we can release those breaks, then the child not only can do it but have fun doing it, and that's right. our. All right. So so now the last part of this of this whole piece. So reframing. That's really cool. Can you actually teach that to a to a, to a kid? Mm-hmm. And the answer is yes. And I'm not sure when they can begin to reframe, but it's quite young. And our problem is that children begin to internalize the idea I'm a bad kid, yes. and they begin to internalize this at a very young age. But if we can get them to see I'm not a bad kid, mm-hmm. but I am stressed. And I got to figure out why I'm stressed because I know that now I'm beginning to learn that when I feel stress, I get these ooky feelings in my arms or in my stomach or my head starts to hurt. And now I want to know why. Like, what is it? And as a as an adult, we can help them learn what these stresses are. And, and it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes a long time to figure it out. But the point is that when we talk about reframing, it's something that we do for ourselves something that we do because we have to reframe our own reactions it's something that we do to understand the child and it's something that the child has to learn and um it's interesting when we work with teenagers that it seems like they hit grade nine and they regress to a very childlike state if they're overstressed but an awful of them are right and so what we have to do is we have to go through the same steps uh, the, you know, of helping them reframe. Okay, so that's the first step. Do you want me to do more or do you want to pause? 
I would, I would love to do more. It just, I, there's a few little things that come up for me just personally as a parent, um, which has been really interesting is that reframing that idea of misbehavior versus that stress behavior. And, this pressure, I think, that sometimes parents and teachers yeah. feel that we need to be kind of getting yeah. to this end goal. And if we don't, that yeah. the world's going to fall apart or it's going to somehow represent that we're a terrible love parent. It. And so we yeah, feel this it. tension and we feel this urgency. And I think yeah. that's where that that's anger great. can bubble up is it's actually fear. It's like, what happens if I don't get this behavior under wraps? And I think when we can release ourselves from that expectation that there's a lot to be gained. And that's a personal sort of vulnerability that I've learned as a parent and of course as a teacher as well. But I think parenthood is like the next level. It's like there's nobody else doing this job but you. And so the pressure feels feels heightened on some level. So I just wanted to touch Morgan, on that. Morgan, what you just said is brilliant. And I am grateful that you are getting conveying that message to parents. They need to hear that. Mm, thank you. So they can release that pressures on themselves, turn off their own limbic alarm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great point. Love it. Thank you. And yes, I would love to continue on. Okay. So the next step is identify the stresses. And so here, what we're going to do is we want, um, you know, we, we'll start off with say parents or teachers and, you know, we need them to understand that there are five different kinds of stress. Uh, there's not simply one kind of stress. So there are obvious physical stresses, and it could be noise or the other children or the lights. And so, you know, there's lots of lots of uh, biological or physical stresses, you know, lack of sleep, poor, poor nutrition, all those. Yes. Then there are emotional stresses. And we need to recognize that for a young child, emotions are scary, strong emotions, and it doesn't have to be negative. Mm-hmm. Strong, positive emotions can be scary, too, being overexcited. So this, these, these are big, big stresses for a child. Um, and it turns out that I'm not sure that they aren't big stresses for us throughout the lifespan. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, then we have what are called cognitive stresses. So an obvious example of a cognitive stress is math. A cognitive stress is, a, is something that makes a big demand on a part of the brain which is called working memory. So there are certain things that make way more demands on working memory than others. For example, math is way more than art. Sure. Uh, And uh, what we have to do is uh, we have to understand that children are all developing at a different speed. And there are reasons that have to do with what's called the maturation of certain systems in the brain, why one child, um, why one child may, take, may take a little longer to not master something, but to enjoy the experience of, of mastering something, you know, nurturing curiosity, all that. Here's a, here's a huge discovery that they made. We now understand that a child with ADHD has a slower maturation I hope that's clear what I mean. Yes. Of of the part of the brain that houses our internal biological clock. Oh. And what that means is that for that child, time goes way more slowly. Wow. So, yeah, I know. So now let's take something like the marshmallow task, which is where I yes. started all this. And you say to the kid, okay, you know, you're going to have to wait five minutes or 15 minutes before you get enough, before you get double the treat. But for a child with ADHD, that five minutes feels like an hour, feels like 10 hours. Now, think to yourself, if, if I have to go to the bank and I have to wait for 40 minutes to see the teller, how stressful that it is. <laughs> yes. Well, that's what this poor little guy is going through. And what we look at when we do self-reg is, you know, are there ways that we can reduce these cognitive stresses? And it turns out, yeah, there's tons of ways we can do it, but we'll only do it if we see that the child's, let's say, oppositionality Mm. or the child's poor frustration tolerance are, in fact, those 
uh, signs that you and I started with yeah. uh, when a child is overstressed. These are key signs. So when we identify stressors, so we start off, we do we do first physical, then we do emotional stress, then we do uh, cognitive stress. The next kind of stress we look at is social stress. And for a child in school, this is maybe the biggest stress. Yes. Um, and then finally, uh, there's pro-social stress. Now, pro-social stress is, let's make it very simple for today. Let's say we're talking about empathy. And we forget that <coughs> empathy can, in fact, for a young child um, or an older child, uh, be a huge stress. Why? Huh. Because if I feel someone else's distress, I literally feel it. I become distressed. And children have a lot of trouble separating their distress from someone else's. In other words, experiencing someone else's distress and not becoming distressed themselves. Right. And so a lot of times what happens is they shut this down because of the because of this because of this heightened pro-social stress, they shut down their empathy. They shut down uh, their compassion. Right. And and then we get angry because you say, oh, well, you know, you're being mean or whatever or selfish. But in fact, uh, what needs to happen is we have to figure out, and that's what we do in self-reg, what are the ways that we can reduce pro-social stress? And there's ways to do it. So when we look at identifying the stresses, we tell parents and teachers that you have to become a stress detective. Yes. Now, here's where it's fun. The fun part is, can you teach that to kids themselves? Mm -hmm. So we just did, um, so the Merit Center, which is our organization, we just did a, a game, a game-based learning for teenagers, which is all about becoming a stress detective. So and cool. it turns out, yeah, it's cool. Yes. And they love it. And the reason they love it is because it's not simply a game, but it's a personal game. It's one that has deep meaning for their own lives. So now the next step is, can we take these ideas and develop similar approaches for young children? Mm -hmm. And and of course, that's exactly what we've been doing for, uh, for many years in social emotional learning. We just didn't know that what we were doing was self-right, but we are in fact doing self-right. Yes, absolutely. Oh, that's so great. I love, oh man, I love all of these ideas because I think, uh, I think on some level too, uh, it's under, underappreciated that that pro-social stress exists. And, yes. and I think I, with such a, with the, the initiative that we have around kindness, I think that's really important to keep in our minds. I, and I meant to tell you this. So, um, uh, we looked into your organization right before we sure. agreed to do this and we loved it. Thank and you. And the reason why... And the reason why we love it is the following. What we are trying to do is create in every school, in every class, in every school, a self-reg haven. Mm -hmm. A self-reg haven is a, is, 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 is a place where everyone feels safe. So you feel safe. Um, and so we're not just talking about the children, but we're also talking about the teachers, the staff, everyone. Yes. You cannot, you cannot create a self-reg haven, if you try to do it through zero tolerance. Yes. Because in fact, what that does is it makes everyone, it makes everyone uh, on edge. It makes everyone not just the, not everyone gets a little anxious. How do you do it? You do it through kindness. Mm, that's, and that's why, we that's why we love what you're doing. Thank you so much for saying that. That obviously means so much coming from you. And I think, I think that's, definitely a point that I wanted to, to speak about also is this idea of creating a safe environment, this self-regulation haven, because that's yeah. at the root of really what this is feels like an inquiry project, yes. right? Is sort of this, yes. how do we get there? We want, I have a really clear vision. Many of us have a really clear vision of where we want to go, understanding what we do about the way that, that our brains work and this need to be certain and safe and also create uh, an environment of innovation and creativity because I mean yes, that's a yes, really yes, important yes. piece but how yes. do we do that if we don't first have that really safe ground you know ground to work from because if if kids don't feel safe enough to be creative to be innovative to share new and maybe crazy ideas that that yes. might get shut down 
then they won't because they'll shut down. <laughs> so that's part yep. of it as well is sort of creating Love that. Mm -hmm. Love it. And there's a nice neurobiological story to uh, that supports everything you're saying. You mentioned the oxytocin uh, and cortisol before, and now we can draw in uh, another half dozen, another half dozen neurohormones that do the same, but only if the child is in that balanced state that you were talking about. Yes. And so that's really our goal is to get there, right? Yep. So, yeah, exactly. So now that we've recognized some of those stressors and now what do we do? yeah, what, what do we do now? How do we, how do we help these kids to develop some, some really actionable skills and to really promote that resilience and that again, restoration back to this balanced state? Okay, so the next step uh, in the method, in the Shanker method, is uh, it's called reduce the stress. Mm -hmm. and, and so how are we going to do that? Well, again, what we're going to look at is all five domains. And um, so we have tons and tons of uh, strategies that we share with educators. And maybe what you'll do is uh, you'll uh, experiment with lighting or, or, or ways to reduce the noise levels. Maybe what you'll do is you'll... Um, uh, you will um, uh, uh, have the child uh, give the child access to, to uh, prosthetics or fidget toys, whatever. Mm -hmm. So lots of those ideas. But here's the key in all this. Where we are most effective, where we are most successful with when we work with schools is when this becomes a dialogue with the child. Mm -hmm. When it becomes an active participant in figuring out how do we reduce your stress. So now if the child is becoming aware, our fourth step is for the child to learn to be aware of what it feels like to be calm, what it feels <coughs> like to be coming over stress. Now we have to work out with the child, um, what are the ways that help you calm down? And it's fascinating the things that kids have come up with. So, uh, you know, some of them are the obvious ones. You know, the kid says, I need, you know, I need to uh, get up and move around, or I love these exercise, these uh, stationary bikes, or I need to just be able to walk, or I need to be able to. But then we get kids telling us uh, things that we didn't explain, that we didn't anticipate. Mm -hmm. uh, one, we had one classroom, uh, it was a grade seven behavioral management classroom in the far north. And um, so the teacher asked, the, it was 20 boys, and you can imagine what it was like, right? 20 <laughs> yes. Boys. Uh, and so she got into this discussion with them about what would you like to do to um, uh, to reduce your stress? And their answer was, we would like to knit. Wow, really? Yes. Wow. Yeah, I'm not... And they were good too. So, so we are constantly amazed at the things they come up with. We had another class, similar age group where what they wanted to do was collect the recycling. Uh, um, a class, the, the kids uh, as a group or on their own will be able to figure this out if we listen. Yes. Um, and they may need some help, but we have to, okay. So then the fourth step is self-awareness. Now self-awareness, what we're looking at here is a couple, three things. The first thing we want them aware of is when they are becoming overstressed. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, the key here is the becoming part, right? So they can't learn that unless they learn what calmness is and they cannot feel calm unless they feel safe. Right. So, okay. So we're going to work on that. The second thing we need them to become aware of is every child begins to, uh, develop coping strategies, defensive strategies to deal with stress. And sometimes these are the cause of more stress. Um, I'm not saying this well, but let me give you an example to explain. Sure. sure. A lot of times kids get, they find their emotions uh, a huge source of stress. And what they do is they respond to that by shutting down their emotions, by denying these emotions. Right. So. So over and over, we'll work with a kid that we know is is in a state of high anxiety. And the child will say, no, I'm not anxious at all. Uh, and if you say to the child, um, you know, you seem to be afraid of something, the child says, no, 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 I'm not afraid. 
And what's happened is they have actually uh, dissociated themselves yes. from the, the feeling that makes them scared. So what we need them to do is we need them to learn um, about themselves, to become aware of their reactions, of their, of their uh, strategies, let's say, for when they are, when, when something does overstress them. Right, which uh, is sort of this like, and it can present as numbing, right? And sort of numbing that really extreme I emotion, I, right? I, I love that because that's a great word and I'll use it because we talk about dissociation, but mm-hmm. numbing is good. Okay, so now the third thing. What's the third awareness that we want them to be to develop? And that's awareness of the beauty of their soul. Hmm. an awareness of their gifts, an awareness that they are someone who is wonderful. And, and it's quite extraordinary to me, you know, I was just this morning, I had to do something. And I was uh, talking to a young teenage boy, not young, 16 year old teenage boy. Mm -hmm. And, and we were talking about how, um, when I was his age, um, my teachers were constantly telling me that I could be whatever I wanted to be if I set my mind to it. Yes. And his teachers have been constantly telling him the opposite. <laughs> right. And, right. And, and so what I wanted him to see, and this is, I'm not exaggerating here at all. This is an extraordinary young man. He is smart, strong, handsome, um, and sweet, kind. Mm-hmm. He's not and he's out of touch with all of that. Yeah. So he has. So we want him to. So, and 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 we want them to see this from from the start. So so that's our fourth step: developing self awareness. And then the fifth step Can is. Can I? Do you mind me yeah, interjecting yeah. just for a second there? Because no, absolutely. I think that piece that actually made me a little teary eyed, which sounds so cheesy, but it's yeah. true because I think that is the fundamental part of all of this is like when we can see kids and then they can see themselves the way that we see them that is such a beautiful piece because then everything's limitless and i think so much of the the negative self-concept and this feeling of inefficacy in whatever academic or non-academic endeavors that some of these kids do and that burden of like you said all these negative interactions that some of these kids kind of accumulate over time and that's like a heavy backpack that weighs them down and they believe the story that they're told day after day. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, and I just think that when we really cling to that part about, you said, seeing the beauty of their souls is such an important part of this and so I just really wanted to reinforce that because I I believe in my heart that that's the reason I became an educator. I think that's the reason a lot of people go into teaching or any of the helping professions really is is to be able to be that conduit. And sometimes we lose track of that and that that's the most important piece in all of this. So thank okay, you. Morgan, Morgan, I want to tell you something that you may find shocking. Okay. okay? <laughs> so we have seen literally an explosion of our self-reg school initiatives mm-hmm. across Canada and around the world now. And I keep on wondering why. Mm. And my belief is every single educator came into the field because of what you just said. Mm. Everyone is drawn into this because of this incredible pro-social drive. Mm -hmm. The problem is that teachers and the other health professions you mentioned experience pro-social stress to an extent that is difficult for me to compare to any other profession. What do I mean by that? So we talk about the stresses on teachers. We talk about, you know, the workload or all the things they have to fill out or whatever it is. But deep down, what I see over and over is that when they have a problem with a student, they internalize it. Yes. They, and so um, part of the part of the you you had a wonderful line about 20 minutes ago, you know, this this release, letting the burden go. And we want teachers to do that, too. So we do this thing in Peterborough every summer. We do a, a, a summer institute, a self rake summer institute. And what's fascinating for me to watch is these teachers rediscover the joy that took them into education. And I swear to God, it's 
I, you know, I keep on telling our executive director this. It's like watching a bunch of kids <laughs> that suddenly are allowed to have fun again. Yes. Yes. And I, I identify with that on some level, that that sort of owning owning the misbehavior as though somehow you're to blame and the shame that comes with that ultimately on yes. some level. And so yes. I and think parents it's... Too. And parents and too. Par- of course, yes, of course. And how that all reflects on you. And I think this is why this is such an important conversation is I think it is so universal to feel this way. And we need to be able to have the language and, and the framework as you're presenting to be able to sort of reevaluate and look at it and let ourselves a little bit off the hook when we're feeling that way. And you got so, it. Yeah. So I, I love this. Thank you. And, and continue. <laughs> okay. And then the last step and the last step is called respond. And really what we're looking at there is where we started, where you and I started today, you need balance mm-hmm. and you have to figure out what are the things that give you balance in your life. And when we look at balance, we, we remember that we have to look at balance in all five of our domains, not just one. So we have to look at physical balance, sleep, diet, all that stuff. Yes. What are the activities that um, what are the activities that you find restorative? Restoration is huge. So someone asked me, I was interviewed last week and they asked me, well, what do I do? Um, so what do I do for uh, balance? Yes. So I do, I do a ton of things. So I actually, I run every morning. Uh, I, I call it running. My children don't, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I go for walks. But mostly what I love to do, especially this time of year, is uh, I live on an island. So I go sit on the dock and I just sort of have um, an, uh, what I call uh, an extraception bath. And oh. what that mm-hmm. is, is you've heard of uh, the forest baths, right? Um, I'm, so, y- yes, yeah. Uh, so an extra so an extra reception bath is when I just stop thinking and just listen to what's going on, you know, listen to the birds, listen to the water, smell, smell the air. And I find that what happens is after <coughs> however long I do it, I feel balanced in every domain. And what I mean by that is it's not just like, oh well, I've got more energy. Yeah. I feel yeah. spiritually balanced. I feel socially balanced that now I can, you know, re-engage. I actually did it just before this call so that I could be in a nice state. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. so each of us has our routines. Um, uh, my, you know, my wife does it by baking bread. I mean, you know, we find those activities. Um, now, the question is, uh, can we do this with kids? And the answer is, oh, kids do it by themselves all the time. It's just, the problem is we stop it. Right. So what does that look like then for kids, would you say? So, um, well, I can let me let me do it by my uh, by my own two children. Uh, My son was a hockey player and so is a hockey player. So what he would do is he would go and shoot pucks at the garage door. Yep. And uh, very regulating for him, not so much for mom. (laughs) Yeah. But I remember saying to her over and over, just let him be. And he would come in and it was very interesting what he looked like when he came in after doing this. Um, his his face was was you could see in his skin that he was happy. His voice was happy. So uh, so that's my son. Yeah. Uh, my daughter, um, not actually that different as it happens. My daughter is a budding David Suzuki or whatever. Yes. And so what she what she does is we because we live in the middle uh we do live on an island and we're surrounded by forest and so she would self regulate by going into the forest and looking at animals sort of like Gerald Durrell. Yes. So but the point is now suppose that uh all I heard when my son shot pucks was the noise. Mhm. And so, and I interfered with this and I said, you know, stop doing that. Uh, Go find something more constructive to do. Suppose I said to my daughter, you know, don't do that. There's bugs in there and now we're worried about ticks and you're coming in dirty. So, um, you know, our own, um, uh, you know, we, our own limbic reactions and it could be fear, it could be annoyance. 
can in fact derail something that the kid is doing. And I'm fascinated by what children choose to do to balance themselves. Uh, if given the chance, they all know what to do. Now, here's a here's a risk, though, okay? Mm-hmm. The big risk that parents have today, and un- unfortunately, it is having a significant impact on educators as well, is that kids are turning to uh, computers and iPhones. Okay, I'm so glad that you're touching on technology because this is an important point. So I'd love to okay. hear this. Yes. Okay, so this is huge. And the reason it's huge is... Um, the big thing that's happening today is these guys are studying and employing something called a hook model. Hmm. And a hook model is uh, something that will trigger dopamine. Mm-hmm. And dopamine, dopamine keeps us going. Dopamine keeps us, uh, and it has pleasant uh, sensations. Now, the danger here is that psychologists studied dopamine triggers um, for much of the latter part of the 20th century, and there's a huge science on it. And the guys that are creating these games uh, are literally going back through that science and then using it to basically make a buck. So um, when a child uh, gets hooked, oh, so, so 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 so, do you want me to give you an example of an uh, of an easy hook? Yes, I'd love that. Yes. Okay, let's take a game like Candy Crush. Okay. Okay, so I didn't know anything about this, and my daughter uh, said to me, I, I caught her one day, and she was very tired, and uh, she'd had a hard day at school, and I caught her on the fo- on her iPhone uh, playing what turned out to be Candy Crush. Mm-hmm. So I got her to show me how the game works. And the game is utterly absurd. Yes. Game, okay, so, but this is puzzling. Um, why would anyone care less about what level you were on? Or, you know, why would anyone? So I asked her that. And she said, well, it's because it's relaxing for me. Mm-hmm. But that was puzzling, too, because I could see that she was uh, fit to be tied when, when she finally stopped playing the game. She was anything but relaxed. So what's really going on here? What's going on is they have all kinds of methods of triggering the the child's dopamine response, uh, and that comes from deep inside that that reptilian brain that you and I start that limbic brain that you and I started with. It comes from deep within the something called the striatum. So you keep on each level. There are <coughs> sorry ways to trigger dopamine. The dopamine is a compulsion. The mm-hmm. dopamine keeps them glued. So this in itself sends them into low energy, high tension, Hmm. really low energy. But now let's compound it because let's say I've got that kid who is hooked on Minecraft or hooked on uh, one of the awful video games, the violent ones. Right. Okay, so now I know that, that the child's been hooked or the teen's been hooked. I know that they, they, they are developing uh, basically a dopamine addiction, needing dopamine. Right. But now I'm going to look at, well, wait a second. What are the things they're not doing? Mm-hmm. Ah, wait a second. They're not exercising. They're not sleeping. They're not eating properly because food is also using a hook model. So it goes on and on. So when we look at this, we look at both sides of the equation. We look at the cost of this of this experience and we look at the cost in terms of what they're not doing, self-regulating things like being in nature or being with friends or whatever. Yes. All of this. So what this means is that that kid is coming into school in a really significantly low energy, high tension state right before the day has started. And now we're saying to the teacher, you've got to, you've got to teach this kid who is in no shape to learn And unfortunately, when you are, to come back to what we were talking about at the beginning, Mm -hmm. when a child is low energy, high tension, the threshold for going into fight or flight is significantly lowered. They can go into fight or flight at the, at the slightest, at the slightest uh, trigger. And and so, um, you know, it's hard. This is a, a difficult time because we are seeing 
uh, generation, all ages, that are significantly overstressed. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about, uh, when we talked at the beginning about um, um, uh, 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 being a stress detective, you know, you have to look at stresses in your child's life that maybe you didn't realize were a stress. And that's not just video games or iPhones. That's even things like like sweetened drinks, like soft drinks, or uh, kids don't drink water anymore. Yeah. So when we are when we are talking about how we achieve balance in that final in the final step, um, what we need to do is we need partnerships between educators and parents. Uh, as 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 a system, as a as a unit, we have to figure out what do we need to do, because I can tell you right now, let's say as Johnny's teacher, that Johnny is way way smarter mm-hmm. than we're seeing, or that Johnny is actually a sweet kid, but he keeps on doing X and Y. So we have to figure out what needs to be done, and whatever needs to be done has to be done, Absolutely. and then the child and the child has to understand all this. The child has to. Uh, you know, uh, can I, I'll just say one last thing. Yes. How do you how do you get, let's say, a teenager to buy into what I'm talking about here? Oh. It's, you explain it to them. You tell them the tr- truth. They had a very interesting. There's a fascinating book by a woman called Tina Rosenberg. Uh, 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 yeah, I forgot the name of the book. Um, the In Crowd, Join the Crowd, something like that. Okay. There was an attempt. Uh, they they tried for years and years to get kid, teens to stop smoking. And so they had graphic, you know, scary pictures. Yes. And, and none of it worked. Right. None right. of it. And the, all of a sudden, they figured out how to stop teen smoking. And now the numbers on teen smoking have been one of our great successes. How did they do it? They told them the truth. <laughs> they told them that this is what the companies are doing in order to hook you on cigarettes. And so, and so these are the chemicals they use. These are the images that they use. This is all about, uh, this is all about companies hooking you for their bottom line. Well, it turns out teens didn't like that. (laughs) And and so the, so the, the big driver in, uh, in the, in the incredible results we've seen in the teen smoking campaign has been giving those kids insight into what's going on. Now that's what we have to do with the, with the games. That's what we have to. And so really when we talk about self-reg, these five steps, it's really about, it's, it's really about developing whether it's in the child, the teen or in ourselves, the insight into why we do what we do, why we're having the problems that we're having. Yes. Oh, this is so important. And I really appreciate you going through that dopamine. Um, it's like an addiction cycle, really. Yes, and and so when we deal with it, and yeah, if we deal with it in that in that manner, and like you said, you sort of make students aware of that process and how that affects us on a neurobiological level, that it's really surprising, I think. And, and like you said, I, to reach out to parents so that they understand that TV and video games may seem as though they're relaxing and restorative, but they're really yeah. not, and that they're stressful. And that I was so fascinated to hear, though, that it can tip you right over into that fight or flight mode, which is something I, I wasn't really aware of. So that's really interesting. Could you define what kindness means to you? Okay, so uh, you won't know this, but I'm actually, uh, um, my training was in philosophy. Mm. And as a philosopher, um, I see humans as social animals. And um, I think that kindness is the most basic of the innate characteristics that enabled us to survive as a species. So Mm -hmm. for me, kindness is releasing the the innate trait by the way these are in the red brain this mm-hmm. trait that 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 is the reason why we are still here it is not something that has to be learned but it is something that can be blocked interesting what book or books have you gifted most often to people? 
So uh, in, in relationship to this theme, probably Rafi's uh, child honoring. Hmm. Um, I had uh, lunch with Rafi. Um, I had lunch with Rafi two days ago, and oh, we were nice. talking about just this thing. Um, so uh, Rafi's, Rafi's covenant is something that I would want every single teacher and educator to read and be moved by, as I am. Huh. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that. What one skill or superpower does a teacher need to lead with in order to be effective? Uh, self-regulation for themselves. Is it different for a principal? Self-regulation for themselves. <laughs> and finally, what message or quote would you print on one of those quote cups that are sold in big bookstores that could be read by millions? So we have three that we use, and, and I love these, and I still love them. Number one, there is no such a thing as a bad kid. Mm-hmm. Number two, there is no such a thing as a kid who can't learn how to self-regulate. And number three, there is no such a thing as a fixed trajectory. All trajectories can be changed if only we have the right tools. Thank you so much for your wealth of information and wisdom. It's been a wonderful conversation. You're welcome, Morgan. Thank you, too. This has been another episode of Kind Sight 101, the podcast. For links to resources mentioned in this episode, visit smallactbigimpact.com and click on our podcast and choose this episode number. Now, I'd love to give my audience a heads up about my new book, which will provide ideas, actionable strategies, and inquiry-based approaches to creating kinder classroom through serving the community. Subscribe to my blog for more information. Now, I would love to hear from you. What's the biggest insight that you gain from this conversation? Head over to our website, smallactbigimpact.com, leave a comment on our podcast page, or tag and connect with us on social media with the hashtag smallactbigimpact to share your inspiring story of kindness. Can't wait to hear from you.